You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. You have heard it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. So I told John I was going to do the um, short version of my presentation about our ministry, but I think I did sort of a long version. I'm sorry about that. So I've taken up a bit more time than I intended. But I really don't want to skimp on this because this is like a really rich, not long, but a really rich passage. And <clears throat> I was really excited to get in and jump in and be part of this series on the Sermon on the Mount until I actually started really studying this and getting into it. And I was like, oh man, this is actually really hard. So what we're going to do this morning is, if it's okay with you, I'm going to sort of just preach to myself, and you can listen in, Um, and hopefully it will make some sense, and maybe some of it will be relevant to you too. I, um, have we got the first slide there, guys? I'm going to call this Powerful Losers, Um, because I want to talk to you not just about loving our enemies, but doing that in the face of injustice. So, when I was a kid, I grew up in a really conservative Baptist denomination, and I was taught all the time that people would see the way I lived and see how different I was as a Christian, and they would be attracted to Jesus. But when when they, you know, when I was growing up, when they talked about being different, what they meant was, they'll see that you don't swear, you don't drink, you know, you don't go to movies, actually, in our case. And you are sort of like holier and better than other people, basically. And as I got older, I was like, why would anyone want to become a Christian just because they see that I never drink or swear or do any of these things? They'd be like, that's really boring. Being a Christian seems really lame. And when I was looking at this passage, I was thinking, you know, this is actually really, really exciting because in some ways what Jesus teaches us here is how we are actually supposed to be different as Christians. And it's much, much harder, unfortunately, than just not drinking or not swearing. If I could tell you this morning, like, all you have to do to really, you know, to be a true Christian is just not swear, you might be like, oh, that's a bit tricky. What Jesus is asking us to do that makes us really different from sort of everyone else is something that I think is nearly impossible. So here we go. It's going to be great times.
Jono sent me this, oh, can you guys go to the next slide? Sorry, I forgot that it's not changing when I do it here. Jono sent me this cool graphic about Justin Martyr, and I actually wanted to put it up. He said he was a, one of the early church fathers in the first century, or second century. He said, we used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people, and we pray for our enemies. He's pointing out what I just said to you, that this teaching about loving your enemies, we all kind of know it pretty well, I think. We've probably all heard it. But it's one of the key things that makes us unique, makes us different. And that's what Justin Mata was saying here, too. He was saying, like, we're actually weird. We're a weird community because we follow this teaching of Jesus. He said, not Justin Mata, but Jesus that if we did this, we would be different from the tax collectors and the pagans or the Gentiles. And I think when he says that, what he means is, when you do this, you will be, you will be very, very unique. So go to the next slide. I want to talk to you a little bit about this first bit. So what I'm going to do is here, I'm going to jump around to some of these different verses. We're not going to talk much about that final verse that Suzanne read for us, um, be perfect as your father is perfect. I think Jonah is going to handle that next week, luckily for me, because that's a pretty tricky one. So I'm not going to talk as much about that. Um, but let's start with this, with this phrase, that you may be children of your father in heaven. So Jesus says, if you love your enemies, pray for those who mistreat you, you will be children of your father in heaven. Okay. So he's not saying here, first of all, he's not saying this is like the way you become a child of God. He's not saying that. What he's talking about, actually, he's referencing what was a common expectation or practice in that time, which was that sons would take on the same trade as their father. They would do the same kind of work that their father did. And actually, um, not a few, maybe a century or two after Jesus in the Roman Empire, this actually became a law wasn't just that you were expected to take on your father's trade, it was that you had to. You weren't allowed to change professions from one generation to the next. Um, it's really interesting, actually. It sort of was the basis of the feudal system. So that's what Jesus, I think, that's what he means. He means, if you do this, you will be taking on your father's trade. Now, this probably would have been a little bit shocking to the people he was talking to because he was talking to... Jewish people, and they considered themselves sort of like the children of God. They considered themselves the, the sort of special chosen people. And they thought that already by following the law of Moses, they were doing this. They were taking on God's trade. They were children of God because they followed the law of Moses. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You heard it was said in the law of Moses, you've got to love your neighbor. And you've been also saying, you know, you can hate your enemies. But I'm saying if you want to follow in your father's footsteps, if you want to follow, do his trade, you have to love your enemies. It's a little bit like um, Jesus is saying to them, you guys think, you know, you, you're, you think your father is a painter, and so you're, up, you're off painting houses with rollers. But actually, your father is an artist. He's that kind of painter. You've got it completely wrong. Can you guys get, go to the next slide? Yeah. Your father is a great artist. 
And you're out painting houses thinking that you're doing the same thing he does. It's completely different. You've got it completely wrong. So what do we have to do then to take on our father's trade? Well, we've already kind of said the answer. We have to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. It's easy. So just do that, guys. See you later. It's not so easy. And actually, as I was talking to Erica last week about this, we were kind of chatting about it, and she said, okay, so one thing that comes up for me when I read this, I think it's a really good question, it's the same question that I have, is who is our enemy? What does he mean when he says that? Love your enemies. So that's the first question I want us to look at. Who is my enemy? And I think this is actually really crucial that we understand this first before we go any further. So we can go to the next slide. Okay, so the first clue we have about this is in that phrase that Jesus says a little bit uh, later down in this passage. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? So this is a clue to us about who our enemy is. He's saying, in a way, your enemies are those people who don't return love when you give it to them. When you interact with these people, you, you, you can't expect anything good to come back. For most of us, when we interact with our family, when we interact with our friends, when we interact even with maybe people you know, within our church community, we expect to at least get something, you know, some goodwill, some at least maybe politeness. But Jesus is saying, when he says you have to love your enemies, he's saying you have to love those people who don't give you anything back in return. So my son Leif was um, with me and my brother-in-law and a whole bunch of our kids at the park uh, a couple of months ago. And he was sitting with me and my brother-in-law, and we were just kind of watching the kids play on the playground. And they wanted to climb up this thing and go down the slide, but there were a couple of, there were like three or four teenagers sitting at the top of the, the play equipment, kind of blocking the slide. And the little kids, of course, they're like, oh, there's some big teenagers up there. I don't want to go up there where the teenagers are, you know. They were getting scared. And they were kind of looking to us like, we really want to play on the slide, but those teenagers are there, you know. So my son, Leif, he's a real justice warrior. And he gets annoyed by, he's a teenager himself, but he gets annoyed by teenagers and their bad attitude, you know. So he's like, hey, you guys, you know, get down off the slide. That's, this is a little kid's playground. And of course, they just looked at him and were like, oh, what an idiot, you know. Listen to that idiot. With some other names thrown in as well, as you can imagine. And they didn't move. So he was getting really annoyed and aggravated. And so he, he accosted them again, you know, and said, come on, guys, this is, you know, this is a place for the kids to play, not for you guys to sit up there and be cool or something. And they just, you know, gave him more flack. Well, he was sitting there kind of fuming about this. Meanwhile, my brother-in-law went to the shops and grabbed a box of, like, ice creams to give out to the kids. And there were a few left over. And as Leaf was sitting there sort of fuming and thinking about what he should do, and I was saying, you know, we've got we've to try to be kind and not sort of inflame these people, he decided that he was going to try to follow Jesus here, and he took the extra ice creams, and he gave it to these teenagers. He said, would you guys like some ice creams? And I know this is really hard for him, because he was feeling like the injustice of this situation. He gave them the ice creams, and I think he was hoping that he would give them the ice creams, and they would be like, 
oh, wow, we weren't expecting that. Oh, thanks, man. You know what they did? They were like, oh, you're a weirdo. And they took the ice creams and made sure he was watching. And they unwrapped them all and they like threw them on the ground and trampled on him. And he was nearly in tears, my sensitive 16-year-old, about this. I was proud of him for trying to do, trying to follow Jesus here. But he gave love to his enemies in that situation, and they didn't give him anything but hate back. And for the rest of the afternoon, they kept sort of wandering around, and every time they would see him, they would sort of, you know, throw some insult or comment his way. These are the kind of people I think that Jesus is asking us to love here, the people who don't love us back. And we can't follow this command expecting that it's going to be the answer to the problem. That suddenly if we do this, the other person's going to be like, oh, I've seen the light. I'm going to change my ways. Jesus is telling us that the people he's asking us to love are not people who are going to love us back, even if we pour the love on them. You know, there's that famous phrase that Paul used, that if you, um, if you give your enemy something to drink when he is thirsty, it'll be like heaping burning coals on his head. And I always thought, like, oh, that's cool. It's like, I can get revenge on my enemies by being nice to them, and they'll feel so guilty. But then I found out that that passage, that phrase, really is more like saying, you will give them a warm fire to keep them warm at night. He's just saying, you're going you're gonna, to, like, help them to keep going in life. I'm like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to get revenge on them. I, want to, I wanted to do something that would make them feel bad. But it doesn't usually work. And this is the first answer to the question, who is my enemy? It's people who will not return your goodwill. Which makes this even that little bit harder than I initially thought. Because no matter what we do, sometimes our enemies are going to continue to be our enemies. I want us to think about these for a minute as kind of like personal enemies. But I actually think there's a little bit more to this. If you could hit the next slide, guys. Now, I was reading this in the NIV, and this is the phrase they use. I think in the one that Suzanne read, it said, if you only greet your brothers and sisters. In the NIV, it says, if you greet only your own people. It's essentially the same idea. So first, Jesus says, um, if you love only those who love you, which gives us the idea that our enemies are those who won't love us back. But then he says, if you greet only your own people, how are you different from the Gentiles? And I think this hints at something else, something other than these personal enemies, these people who try to make our lives hard or who don't like us. I want to call these group enemies. And part of the reason I think Jesus is referring to these group enemies here is because there was actually a time when Jesus, in a way, was asked this question, who is my enemy? Only he was asked it sort of in reverse. When he said, you have to love your neighbor as yourself, the Pharisees said, well, who is my neighbor? And in a way, even though they were saying, who is my neighbor, they were really saying, who's my enemy? Who am I allowed to treat badly? And who do I have to treat nicely? And of course, when he was asked that question, Jesus responded by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And nowadays, when we talk about a Good Samaritan, what we usually mean is a stranger who's come along and helped someone that they don't have anything to do with. But that's not what Jesus was talking about when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. He was actually not talking about just a stranger who got involved, 
when it wasn't any of his business. He was talking about an enemy. Now, the man who was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, as you might recall from that parable, was a Jew. And two other prominent Jews passed by and apparently didn't have time or felt like it was um, too compromising to touch this sort of beaten, possibly dead person. It was only the Samaritan who helped. And Samaritans and Jews, this man and this Jewish man who was beaten in the story and the Samaritan who helped him, they were not personal enemies. They didn't have, there wasn't anything sort of between them personally. They were group enemies. Their people, the Jewish people, were enemies of the Samaritan people. They were struggling over whose religion was really the right religion. They were struggling over who got to be in control, in some ways, of their culture. They were fighting over this, and they really didn't like each other. And when Jesus told this story, he was saying, in a way, this man, who was like sort of compromising the true Jewish faith, who was doing all the wrong things, who was like of mixed race and had mixed with the Gentiles, all these despicable things that he was doing, he was the one who acted like a neighbor to this beaten and bloody Jewish man. So if we take that into our question, who is my enemy, or who is my, yeah, who is my enemy, sorry, we can also see that our enemies are, the, are those people who are not our people, people who are part of groups that are opposed to our group. And I feel like this is especially prominent right now, even though we're not in a, particularly in a wartime, um, more and more our, our culture is, within our culture we're wrestling against each other, figuring out who gets to be in control, who gets to say what's right and what's wrong, who gets to point our country or our society in a certain direction. And no more, uh, there's no better place to see this unfolding than on social media to see this kind of Jew-Samaritan kind of dynamic playing out where one group is sort of trying to shame and spit on and put down another group. We're doing this a lot. Maybe your enemy is that person who votes for the party you don't like. Or that person who's marching in the streets wearing weird clothes. The person that is being vilified on the nightly news. That you look at and you say, oh yeah, you know those bloody dot dot dot, they're ruining our society. Can you guys go to the next slide? Martin Luther King Jr., I'm sure most of you have heard of. Um, he was a civil rights activist and a pastor in the U.S. and sort of a hero of mine. He knew about this very well. He knew about this idea of sort of group enemies. He understood it very well. This photo is from um, an occasion on which some white supremacists came to his house in the night and stuck a cross in his yard and set it on fire. 
which if you don't know, that's a symbol of uh, sort of white supremacy, um, anti-black sentiment. And it was an act of terror, trying to terrorize him and his family. And when he came out the next morning with his son in his arms, a bunch of news people were there with cameras to see what would happen. And Martin Luther King walked out to the front yard, took the cross out of his lawn, and he stood there and he prayed out loud in front of all those journalists for God to bless those people who had placed that cross and burned it in his front yard, who had tried to terrorize him and his family. This is something that he said uh, in a sermon, actually, on the same passage that we're talking about today. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, you must not do it. Love is the refusal to defeat any individual. I think this is really important because when it comes to... um, when it comes to personal enemies, I have to say, I don't, I don't feel like I have that many. Occasionally I run into somebody, you know, who doesn't sort of return love, like I said before. But when it comes to group enemies, I find myself actually raving against all sorts of people, you know, like, oh, those people over there are doing this and that, and that's really annoying. And, and Martin Luther King, I think, is following Jesus here when he says, we are not supposed to try and defeat those people. We are not supposed to conquer them. We're not supposed to shame them. He's saying in a way that to love our enemies is to lose. We have to be losers. And I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. is very famous now, but he also was a loser. He was assassinated, actually, for what he did. If he, maybe if he'd been a little bit more militant, that would have never happened to him. If we were to really take this idea to heart, that we have to love not only those people that we encounter on a daily basis who might be our personal enemies, but even we have to love those group enemies, how might that change the way we act on social media, the things we say? How might that change our attitude when we're watching the news at night? And we see certain groups of people being demonized. How might that change sort of the level of fear that we live with every day about people trying to ruin our society or our lives? C.S. Lewis also talked about this. I don't think I'm going to read this whole long quote to you, but I'll quickly summarize it for you. He said that if we are scared for our survival or the survival of our society and our civilization, we might do things that actually don't follow our spiritual law. He says, our business is to follow the law of love and temperance, even when they seem to be suicidal. It's it's part of our spiritual law, he says, never to put survival first, not even the survival of our species. Sometimes we feel like we're in this battle, you know, we're in this battle to make sure that us and our people are protected and defended against those people out there who are trying to ruin everything. But that is not the law of Christ. 
This is not what God does. Can you go to the next slide? God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. So we've, we've talked a little bit about who our enemy is, who it is we're supposed to love, but I've got another question about this. I'm wondering, is this even right to do this? What about injustice? What about injustice? You guys just go back to that previous slide. I've got this photo here. It's a silly, bit of a silly looking photo. This is, um, uh, this is, sorry, Richard Dawkins. You might recognize his face, Richard Dawkins. So I've just, I'm, I'm sorry, Professor Dawkins. I'm just picking on you here for a second. But he's a, fam- he's a very famous and very strident atheist. And I thought, in a way, this, this photo, which I just found on the internet, this photo in itself shows us what our God is like. Because if you, if you can think of an enemy of God, surely Richard Dawkins would be on the list. He hates the idea of God and Christianity. And here he is with the sun shining on his face, enjoying the warmth of the sun. No lightning is striking him. He looks pretty healthy. This is what our God does. He makes the sun to shine even on his most vitriolic enemies. But what about injustice? What about all those things that we know are wrong? What about all those oppressions that we know are being visited on us or on the people that we love and care about? What about this? This is a big question for me because I'm sitting with people often in my counseling work who have been subject to all sorts of abuses at the hands of people who have maybe more power than them. And I'm supposed to sort of, according to Jesus, tell those people that they have to love those enemies? This doesn't seem right to me. This seems actually like, I mean, it's okay if, you know, if if the teenagers in the playground who are being annoying, if we give them our ice creams, like, that's all right. But no, I don't think it's okay for me to expect those abused women that I've worked with to be kind to their enemies. I don't think it's okay for me to expect uh, people who have lived with racism and slavery to be kind to their enemies. That's, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be expecting that. Is it okay for me to allow our society to be taken over by racists or abortionists or communists maybe or God forbid labor, you know? I actually don't mind labor, I'm just throwing it in there as a joke. Can you guys skip ahead a couple of slides for me? Okay, so let's, let's just talk about this question for a second. We, we're getting close to being finished. Jesus spoke against the hypocrisy and the judgmentalism of his, of his enemies, the Pharisees. So we know that Jesus actually wasn't against speaking out against what was wrong. He didn't, he didn't expect us to agree or accept 
the behavior of our enemies or to accept the way they did things. He didn't expect us to join in with what they were doing. He didn't do that. But the thing about Jesus that's weird is that he was expected by a lot of his disciples to overthrow the Roman Empire, to come in and like set up a kingdom that would be truly just, that would end the oppression of the Jews and all the other peoples of the world. But he didn't do that. And even, even the Pharisees and the other teachers of the law who were his more direct enemies all the time throughout his ministry, who were constantly opposing him, they actually got the better of him in the end. He spoke out against their hypocrisy and their way of the, the oppression that they were putting on people, but they got the better of him in the end. He lost. So there's something a little bit wrong about this to me because it's really hard for me to think about loving our enemies in this way, letting our enemies win, being a loser when it means giving up my rights and the rights of people that I care about, the rights of people who are in my, sort of in my group. Saul of Tarsus, as you know, was pretty big into this idea because he saw that this new sect of Christianity was coming in and they were ruining the pure and true faith of the Jewish people. They were bringing in all this, all this uh, false doctrine, I think. So Paul was like, I'm going to put an end to this. Well, he was called Saul at that time. He said, I'm going to put an end to this. He knew that this, or according to what he thought, this, this Christian sect was going to screw up everything that he had spent his life standing for. So of course he was going to try to stop it. Of course he was going to try to defeat these enemies of the true religion. I'm going to show you a quote from the Apostle Paul in just a second. But where I've been wrestling with this, where I've been struggling so much with this passage is that, you know, here I am, I'm like just a man and a white man at that. So how am I supposed to really talk about this? How am I supposed to teach this, to tell people, many of you in this room have probably experienced hardships and oppressions at the hands of others much more than I ever, have, and I ever will. Am I supposed to tell you just to let it go? It's not, not a big deal. Like what, what your enemies have been doing is not a big deal. Just let it go. No, that is not what I want to tell you. Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus actually constantly stood against this kind of evil. And he spent his whole ministry trying to put it to rights. So no, it's, it is a big deal what's being done. What's being done to you and what's being done by some of these groups that are opposed to you and the people you care about. So if it's a big deal but we're supposed to love our enemies, how, can, how is this even possible? How is it possible to work this out? How is it possible to follow Jesus here? How is it possible to follow our Father's trade? Can you go to the next slide, guys? Um, in Rwanda in the 90s, there was a great genocide, as you know, by the Hutu people against the Tutsi people. And if you don't know much of the history, I'm not an expert on it, but the sort of very broad outlines of it were that the, the Hutu people weren't just like a bunch of evil murderers who just wanted to kill somebody for fun, there was actually a long history there of grievances that they had against the Tutsi people because they had been the sort of the elite for a long time. 
And the Hutus had suffered all kinds of injustices throughout their history, often at the hands of the Tutsi people who'd been propped up by the colonial governments. And before the genocide happened, some Tutsi soldiers had actually killed a Hutu leader. So in a way, the Hutus were actually trying to put right an evil that had been done against them. And their efforts to do that, to eliminate their enemies, almost destroyed that country, destroyed the soul of that country. This is where this, I think, we have to think about this from a little bit of a different angle because when the Hutus tried to put right what was done wrong against them, they proliferated hate. They proliferated enemies. When we talk about this, what we always think about is we think about us as the victims and our enemies out there as hurting us. But what if, what if sort of the twist at the end of the movie is that actually we are the enemies? We've been the enemies all along. Let's look at what Paul said after he met Jesus. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This is the thing that sort of blew me away as I was reading this passage and thinking about this passage is that we are actually all enemies. And when Jesus is saying you have to love your enemies... He's saying, do what my father has done. You were all his enemy, and he decided that he was going to stop the proliferation or the increase of enemies by becoming your friend instead. He was going to send his son. God wasn't saying like, oh no, it's no big deal what you did to me. It's no big deal that you've, that you've hated me, that you've disobeyed me, that you have you know, increased violence on the earth and done all this evil. He's not saying it's no big deal. He's saying it's a very big deal and I'm going to stand against it by becoming your friend. When we try to defeat our enemies, we only increase hate. But when we love our enemies, we defeat hate. When we become the friends of our enemies, we defeat hate and we stop being enemies ourselves. It's a little bit, like it's a little bit confusing what I'm saying, I think, but here's the, I, I really want you to get this. What makes it possible for us to love our enemies is when we realize that we are all enemies. Let me show you one last quote and then we'll finish. This is another quote from Martin Luther King Jr. This command of Jesus that we're talking about right now is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization. Love even for enemies. So here's the answer to the question. What about injustice? Is it even right for us to love our enemies when our enemies are perpetrating all sorts of evils upon us, evils that should not be allowed to pass, that should, not be, that should not be accepted? The answer is that Jesus is not asking us to be passive. 
He's not asking us to let these things go. He's not asking us to let it slide. He's asking us to defeat evil. But he's telling us that the only way to do it is God's way. God's way of defeating evil is to love. To defeat our enemies is to increase enemies and hatred. There will only be more enemies in the world. When the Hutus defeated their enemies, the Tutsis, they became enemies themselves. But to love our enemies is to defeat hatred. Let's pray. Father, the teaching of your son in this passage is so profound. And I fear I could never have really done justice to it, Lord. But I pray now that your spirit would move among us and would show each of us how we can be your children, how we can take on your trade. Thank you so, so much, Father, that even though we have been your enemies, that you have chosen to be our friends, that you have chosen to love us and to bless us. Father, please help us never to forget this so that we then, just like your son, can make this radical act of resistance against hate and against injustice, that we can increase love in the world and stop the spread of hate and enmity. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, knowing that only through him and by him can any of this be possible. Amen.